New books in Southeast Asian studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of this channel. Since the late 1990s, Thai cinema has come to global attention with movies like uh, the famous ghost film Nang Nak, the historical drama Suryo Thai, and more recently, the evocative films of uh, the Thai director Apichat Pongwirasetagun, who's won global acclaim, including a Palme d'Or Award at the 2010 Cannes Film Festival. Today, we'll be talking to Assistant Professor Arnika Furman, who teaches Asian Studies and Gender and Sexuality in Southeast Asia in the Department of Asian Studies at Cornell University. She's the author of a haunting new book, if you'll excuse the pun, called Ghostly Desires, Queer Sexuality and Vernacular Buddhism in Contemporary Thai Cinema published in 2016 by Duke University Press. The book is, I think, a remarkable exploration not only of contemporary Thai cinema, but also of queer sexuality and female desire within a Buddhist, religious and philosophical context. The book offers a critique also of queer theory, which is still mainly Eurocentric in the sense of being dominated by Western historical experience and Western philosophical, especially Christian, conceptions of gender and sexuality. Annika, thanks for coming on the show and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Before we discuss the book, could I start off by asking you to tell us something about yourself? How did you first become interested in Southeast Asian studies and Thai film more specifically? You know, I think I became interested in Southeast Asian studies very much by accident. As a child at the age of 10, I was moved to Bangkok <laughs> by my parents for four years. And so that's when I learned some basic Thai and then studied more Thai in university in Germany while I was still in high school. And then finally majored in Thai literature for a master's degree in Germany and spent a lot of a lot more time in Thailand. And so that's how I became interested in Thai. Thai studies, I became interested in Southeast Asian cinema or specifically Thai cinema when I was in Bangkok again for a research stay in 1999 and 2000. And that's a time when Thai cinema was reviving and even burgeoning. And that's when I switched my research focus from working on Thai poetry in conjunction with Sanskrit and Pali to working on something very contemporary, which was this reviving and globally circulating cinema in conjunction with a new moment of sexual politics in Thailand. 
Can you perhaps uh, go into a bit more detail about why you decide to write the book? Why is it important and what did you hope to achieve with the book? In a sense, the book is a historical account. I mean, it looks like the least connected to the discipline of history that you could imagine, right? It's a cultural studies book. It's queer theory. It uh, focuses on film. But what was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s is this simultaneous revival of cinema and a new sort of positioning of sexuality in public discourse and more specifically in a refurbished nationalism, post-1997 financial crisis. And those two things, I think, were so dominating of the public sphere in the late 90s and early 2000s and persisting into the present in part that I decided to write the book that it decided to write itself. Can you give our listeners a kind of a general overview of what's in the book and what the book is about? What the book tries to do is it, it tries to speak about queerness from a Buddhist or Southeast Asian angle, which is something that hadn't been done before in great detail, at least. So English language, I think queer studies is largely dominated by works, at least in my perception, that focus on North American contexts. And I think it's always a problem when one region dominates a field of inquiry. And what happens then is if you look at, at a very different place, such as Thailand or Asia as a whole, then that context has has to exemplify sort of the really weird other thing <laughs> the con you know the contrast to what has been determined uh, for queerness in quotes western context right so i think ghostly desires tries to strike a balance where thailand does exemplify a case of difference but not of an absolute difference and so then the focus is how sexuality in Thailand, queerness but also sexuality as a whole, is marked both by frameworks of liberalism by thoughts about rights and freedom of expression and liberal personhood but also by other influences also by notions of loss, for instance, that have to do with Buddhism, that someone might be thought to be queer because of karmic causality, because of something they have done in a past life. A belief that's not taken so literally, but that's still sort of circulating in the wider public discourse about sexuality. So the, the book is an effort to see how these two things come together. How is liberalism, how are liberal ideas about sexuality, and in particular, minoritized sexualities configured slightly differently in the Thai case and then also complemented by other beliefs that come from a religious domain broadly speaking. When you started out writing the book or thinking about the book did you think from the start you wanted to kind of upset some of the paradigms in queer studies or did that kind of evolve as the book began to take shape? I think it was a going back and forth between the, the materials that were sort of crowding into the public sphere, the films and the video art, and the new trends in, in cultural and social policy that were sort of predominating in, in newspaper reporting on queerness, femininity in the public sphere. So it was going back and forth between these materials, these very current materials, and uh, different things that were being done in largely English language, but also Thai language queer theory. So the book is very much in conversation with critiques of liberalism in queer studies, sexuality studies, but also beyond that in English language scholarship. The book is also in conversation with trauma theory, how people have thought about loss and the limits that it sets us or the possibilities that it offers us 
both in sort of personal, individualized, psychological contexts, but also in larger collective contexts. As the title of the book suggests, you're interested in films with ghostly themes, and the ghost film genre is a, is a popular one in Thai cinema. And for some reason, the figure of the female ghost is particularly prominent. Why is this? In Asian literary and visual representation, this sort of figure of the female ghost can be traced far back. People like Judith Zeitlin have written about female ghosts in Chinese literature and how they heighten certain aspects of femininity and how even in in sort of earlier literature, they represent a, a kind of counterfactual figure for what people find desirable in the domain of sexuality and attachment and femininity especially. So they represent a heightening of femininity. In the Thai context, there are several types of ghosts that are all feminine, but there are also individual ghosts of legend, such as Nang Na, who, who find great popularity both in, in oral history and visual representation. And even in, in the case of Nang Na, even in opera, and comic books, and I, I don't know what else has been done with this story of, of someone who is sometimes called a national ghost. One of the motifs which your book comes back to again and again, which you have described quite beautifully, I think, as Buddhist men- melancholia. Can you explain to the listeners what you mean by this term and why it's important? I'm using Buddhist melancholia to delineate contexts of loss where attachment is already no longer possible, where there is a lost object, someone has died, something has been lost, but where attachment nevertheless persists. And so in a, in a Buddhist doctrinal context, uh, this would be the moment that teaches you about the futility of desire. And this is played out over and over again in, in Buddhist teachings or in Buddhist pedagogic texts. But popular culture both print media and visual representation, takes this well-known pedagogic motif and kind of turns it on its head and uses it as a framework to play out or to test out various trajectories or even nuances of desire. So something that is at its origin, a Buddhist doctrinal teaching, spills over from its pedagogic context onto a context of popular representation, popular media, especially visual media, and gives us this very fascinating figure of the ghost, the person who's already dead, who we can't really be attached to, who should teach us about the impossibility and the futility of desire. But that person in turn becomes sort of the the height of what is desirable. And so this this persistence of attachment to a lost object, to something or someone who has already who is already out of reach, is something that I've called Buddhist melancholia. And the interesting thing is that this is something that in the late 1990s and into the 2000s in the Thai public sphere plays out and repeats across media, different kinds of media, and across social fields. So even in practices, even in policy rhetoric, as well as in these texts of haunting and uh, ghost films. The book analyzes a number of, of different films, but it, its real concern, as the title suggests, is queer sexuality. And of course, a central problematic in the study of sexuality is desire. In your book, you seem to highlight a tension between Western liberal and everyday Buddhist understandings of desire. Could you explain the Buddhist doctrinal teaching about desire and how an appreciation 
obvious may have important implications for the study of sexuality and queer theory. In the past, when people have thought about Buddhism and sexuality, let's say, the questions that they've asked are something like, is Buddhism good or bad for women? Is Buddhism good or bad for gays, right? But I think if we look at Buddhist doctrinal teachings in some more detail, we find that Buddhism gives us very fine-honed tools for the parsing of different elements or different stages of desire, and also for the te- for different temporalities that might be connected to desire. So if we we look at one of the Buddhist doctrinal contexts in which desire appears, it might be the Pratitya Samutpada or Patitya Samutpada in Thai, where um, desire is situated between craving, which is Trishna or Tanha in Thai, and attachment, Upadana in, in Sanskrit or Pali. And I don't think it's used in the same way in Thai. It would be something like Kwamyutit uh, in Thai. So it's between this craving and attachment that the chain of desiring and attaching to things and to the world must be broken. And so this comes up again and again, too, in the ways in which Buddhism uses especially female figures and especially female bodies to teach the largely male observers of how to think about desire, how to experience it, and then how to have the visceral realization of the futility of desire and a trope that comes up over and over again in in buddhist teachings but also in popular culture is the contemplation of either dead or decaying or diseased female bodies as primary tropes of impermanence and therefore of the futility of desire. If we look at Buddhist doctrinal teachings or a number of um, hagiographies and stories, they will take us through different cases of mostly male observers looking at female bodies, being very, very um, taken by them, being very attached to them, and then slowly going through a process of realizing um, that these bodies are in fact, impermanent, that the objects of their desire are impermanent, and that desire and attachment to these objects is therefore futile. So in the case of the Buddhist stories, the largely male observers will have this realization and then slowly learn to detach. What the films that I'm looking at do is to take this teaching and to turn it on its head and to stretch out this moment of deferred detachment, to stretch out the moment of attaching to an object that is in reality always already lost, always already impermanent. What that does, what this sort of deferral of detachment, this stretching out of an impossible moment does, is it gives us a lot of counterfactual stories of desire. It takes one moment and stretches it out and sees what could be done, what could have been done differently, with a trajectory of desiring. One of the movies where I could see uh, these themes being played out in your analysis was you know, the 1999 uh, hit movie Nang Nak. It's a romantic remake of the classic Thai ghost story about a man who doesn't realise that he's married to a ghost. And the movie does really well both with Thai and interestingly also foreign audiences. But you identify, I think, a really interesting conservative nationalist Buddhist theme in the movie. Could you elaborate a little bit on, on what you mean by that? I think this film is, first of all, it's it's the signature film of a reviving Thai film industry at the time. It's also made post-1997 Asian financial crisis. And so 
in a sense, we can read it as a context in which Buddhism is in, is drawn in relation to gender as well as to nation. In the story of this man who comes back from war to his home and doesn't know that his partner has in fact died in childbirth. And she also does not give up her desire to live with this male lover, Mark, and continues to live with him as a ghost. The film is part of a genre called the heritage genre. It's deeply nostalgic. It presents this nostalgic vision of sort of nation, uh, Buddhist community, and gender in the context of a, of a sort of high production value, new look of films. So it has kind of, according to me, Adadon Sakon, or universal or global qualities. It is, in fact, the first film to circulate globally as well. It's also the first film that takes this story, this very well-known central Thai story of the female ghost Nang Nak or Me Nak, and makes it into not a funny film, not a film that's only scary with haunting effects, but into this grand narrative of love loss and um, national recuperation. And in this context, Buddhism plays a large role. In the past, when 23 other films were made about this story, they, they also feature monks, but the monks are more comical figures. They're counterparts to the ghost, but they're not that important. In Nonsi's 1999 um, Heritage remake, Buddhism comes to take on a national role via the introduction um, a nationally known historical figure, the monk Somdetto, a historical abbot who lived in the um, fourth and fifth reigns. So this film is brilliant. It's a brilliant film. It's very open to interpretation. However, it, it does a very interesting thing. It uses the story of this ghost and her location in sort of late 19th century idyllic rural Thailand to reinvigorate Thai nationalism through a focus on the communal. So what it shows us is how the villagers in this location come together as a community over the exorcism of this of this ghost, Nang Nak. And what it portrays in terms of nationalism is a kind of face-to-face um, -face community where People come together over common shared ideals of communality in the village, of adherence to Buddhist values, and of a kind of of a kind of sufficiency already um, that's portrayed in in this setting, kind of affective and uh, communal sufficiency. So, in a sense, the film uses this invented historical context or invented historical setting or location to reinvigorate the notion of what the nation could be and should be after the 1997 financial crisis, which supposedly produced not only in representatives of the state, but also in the population, a sense of loss of sovereignty. Annika, can I ask you what were the main intellectual influences that shaped the way that you write about Thai film in this book? On film in particular, I would say it is the work of Me Adadon in Kawanit, who is sort of the primary scholar, really pioneering scholar on Thai film, on Thai cinema. She's actually a film scholar and has done such foundational work in, in Thai cinema. I also talked to the filmmakers themselves at length over years and decades. I talked to the artist uh, Araya Ratyamroin Su. 
herself. It was important, I think, in this context to pay a lot of attention to both Thai language writing, but also to things that hadn't yet found inscription into the context of scholarly thought, either in art history or in cinema studies. And so there was a there was a large ethnographic component, not only with going to see what was happening in the various new public forums that discuss sexuality, but also in the various new forums around cinema and in the ways in which uh, the artists themselves were talking about or thinking about or writing about sexuality and cinema. At this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. When we come back, I'd like to talk about another theme in the book, that is Thailand's reputation as a queer-friendly country. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Arnika Furman about her new book, Ghosty Desires, Queer Sexuality and Vernacular Buddhism in Contemporary Thai Cinema. As I said before, the Bragg Thailand has a reputation for being a queer-friendly country. The reality, of course, is not uh, quite so simple, especially for women in same-sex relationships. And this is another major theme in the book. Can you talk about the way heteronormative sexuality is regulated in Thailand and how that may differ, for example, from in the West? I'm really uh, glad that you point this out. This is such a vexed question in, in studying sexuality in Thailand, right? But on the one hand, we don't have a long history of prohibition with regard to same-sex sexualities, right, or desires. We don't have anti-sodomy laws as one does in in many other contexts, right, Uh, either colonial or post-colonial or European or U.S. American contexts. And then there's also the fact that when observers travel to Thailand, but also people in the country themselves, often say, well, look, there seems to be great freedom as to how you can inhabit genders, bodies, sexualities. There seems to be no limit to this. On the other hand is a lot of protest against this view. So persons in Thailand who identify as trans, as uh, same-sex desiring, um, etc., etc., also have a lot of complaints about the ways in which desire, queer lives, or even just access to livelihoods is restricted, right? So what the book aims to do (laughs) is to say, uh, okay, what is different then about the ways in which sexuality is regulated in this location? What becomes clear when you study especially uh, the rhetorics of social and cultural policy that became so prominent under the Thaksin Chinawat government in the early 2000s, but that persist into the present, is that the mode of regulation that is deployed in Thailand is a largely discursive one. And this is fascinating. You cannot criminalize homosexuality in Thailand. You cannot, it has not been criminalized it most likely will not be criminalized on a large scale. So what then is so limiting or so painful or nevertheless restrictive 
about sexual regulation in Thailand. The limiting element we find from the early 2000s on, but I think beginning already in the late 1990s, in this hugely expanded discursive onslaught in a sense. For instance, what femininity should look like in the public sphere and especially what it should not look like on the sort of public expression of same-sex desires or trans-personhood. Social and cultural policy uh, from the early 2000s on creates this huge publicly disseminated rhetoric of propriety that actually becomes extremely influential and functions as policy, even though it does not take shape in new prohibitions, it does not take shape in in new legislation. Instead, campaigns such as the Social Order Campaign rely on existing legislation such as zoning laws to go on all kinds of bar raids and then to write up these largely uh, denigrating um, descriptions of how queer persons and women appear in public and to try and streamline and to come up with a discourse about what essentially Thai bodies should look like and what they should perform in, in public space. So this is something that, that is hugely influ influential in social and cultural policy, mainly at present in the Ministry of Culture. These are discourses that still persist, but they were also extremely, they became extremely influential in newspaper reporting um, around the early 2000s, uh, persisting into the present. How significant do you think that independent cinema is for a movement for rights for sexual minorities in Thailand? I know that independent cinema is something that people in the various queer rights groups have turned to again and again to complement efforts in political organizing that address various regulations, discriminatory regulations, and also to address more generally um, negative public perception and biases um, inherent in psychiatry, for instance. The different queer groups from the beginning have collected queer films from Thailand, from without Thailand, have had screenings and have integrated queer cinema into their organizing in a sense. What I think is particularly important about the cinema of um, especially Apichatpong, Virasi Takun, but also all the people who have sort of followed in his footsteps, is that it comes up with a very fine language for how we can think about queerness in a sort of concrete political sense uh, in relation to rights and relation to public representation, uh, but more importantly, how we don't lose out on thinking about desire and sexual personhood, also on a sort of affective psychological level, on a, on a social level that goes beyond sort of a liberal framing of legal rights, gay marriage, etc. Yes, your book devotes a lot of attention to, to Apichat Pong Wirasetagun. Could you perhaps tell the recent listeners who may not be familiar with him who he is, and in particular, how his particular style of presenting gender and queer sexuality in his films? Right, so Apichat Pong Wirasetagun is a Thai filmmaker who's been working since uh, the late 1990s. He originally trained as an architect, then trained as a filmmaker. The hallmark of his cinema is that he's made sort of the Thai every day available to cinematic representation, and especially um, for the purposes of this discussion to queer representation. In a sense, he's created a blueprint for how to make all those things that people didn't think 
were worth showing or representing on the big screen. The Thai every day in small towns or in the countryside. He's created a blueprint for how to make that available to cinematic language, queer representation, and even to a sort of subtly politicized take on the on the contentious political present in Thailand. People have always noted the queer themes in his films. His films were first recognized sort of transnationally, I think in 2004 when his film, no, 2002 when his film Blissfully Yours circulated globally, 2004, uh, Tropical Malady, and then finally in 2010 when he received the uh, Palme d'Or in Cannes, so that no one could could uh, say that they hadn't seen his films anymore anywhere in the world, not just in France. People have always recognized the queer thematics of his works, uh, but people haven't written about them in great detail. The filmmaker himself always draws attention to the queer thematics of his both his uh, feature films but also his short films and his installations. And so he's someone who does something very interesting in terms of how he portrays queerness, but also in terms of how he does storytelling. And this is something that global critics um, have also noted. So they see the queerness in his films not only in sort of same-sex relationships, relationships between men mostly, but they also see it in the way in which he tells a story or in the way in which his cinematic worlds shift between the ghostly realm, the creaturely realm of um, animals, and the human realm. So Christina Nod, a, a German critic, has written about the tendency towards shape-shifting in Apichatpong's films as a queer rhetoric in cinema. So in most of his feature films, at least in three of them, Blissfully Yours, Tropical Malady, and to an extent also in Uncle Bunmi, who can recall his past lives, Apichatpong's films are frequently uh, bifurcated. They come in two halves that sometimes are seemingly unrelated. So his mode of using cinema, his mode of doing cinema itself, has been perceived as a shape-shifting and queer way of doing cinema. But more with regard to content or the ways in which same-sex relationships are portrayed, what really stands out is that, for instance, in his film Tropical Malady from 2004, this director really performs a lot of de-minoritizing moves with regard to queerness. And so Tropical Malady is a film made up of two, two large sections. Sort of first hour is a almost utopian, um, idyllic, largely social delineation of what a queer relationship could look like in a very ordinary setting, a sort of rural slash small town setting where two men interact with each other in a way that seems to have no social opposition. So the director is doing something very interesting by not portraying queerness as something that requires legal emendation, legal protection, legal change, gay marriage, but he's showing something else. He says, look, uh, this particular society that I'm looking at already has the capacity to incorporate queer persons, not even as minoritized. At the same time, he gestures very lightly towards instances of national prohibition. As he's portraying this idol, he's also showing us, no, 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 I know there are other things happening in the country that have aims to restrict 
sexuality on a national level, on a, on a public level. And then in the second half of this film, Tropical Malady, he does something equally interesting when he shifts the relationship of these two men into a completely different location, into this mythical jungle tale of one of the lovers who's also transformed into a tiger ghost. Well, Dong is this is this um, lover who shapeshifts, and he shapeshifts into a animal slash spirit slash human form. And Gang, his lover from the first half, uh, has witnessed his disappearance and follows him through the jungle. It's an attempt to reclaim his lover. And so here, the second half does something completely different with the negativity of queer personhood. Whereas the negativity of queer personhood was uh, refuted, was barely acknowledged in the first half, it's really drawn out, it's really hyperbolized in the second half. So whereas the first first half um, refutes negativity, diminution, all the things that have happened to sexually minoritized persons in the Thai public sphere. The second half of Tropical Malady fully plays out these um, dimensions of negativity, of pain, of loss, of diminution in this jungle fantasy. I found I found it interesting your analysis of particularly the first part of the, the film where you, you as you say the film isn't overtly political but the way that the men in the film are presented as I think you say being marginal to the economic process you know business and trade in the hands of of the women seniority is presented as being over, overwhelmingly feminine and as you say so that the tone of the film the first part of the film perhaps this I think your words are a bemused laissez-faire attitude to homosexuality it's a really different kind of representation of gender and sexuality than we're we're, we're used to so I think Apichapong has done something extremely creative there by saying yes there are all these legal not legal but regulatory um, policy restrictions there's social restrictions in the Thai public sphere but let's also highlight a different kind of queer publicity that also exists and you pointed out the presence of these two older women that are sort of counterparts or um, almost become like playmates to the two men in this scenario so so what's also interesting here is that Apichapong's queer social fantasy is not only a gay male fantasy, but it also includes, it's a cross-gender fantasy. It includes women. They are not necessarily uh, present only in a lesser position. They, in fact, take a leading position in terms of framing desire discursively in terms of their economic success and together with the men they sort of they represent incarnations almost of of a kind of social plenitude in this location in this rural slash small town location that also bears queer aspects perhaps if we could sort of zoom out a little bit i'm not sure if you have thoughts along these lines but so the book is a, i think a really really interesting study of, of queer sexuality in Thailand as presented in, in the films that you analyse. Unfortunately, we can't talk about all of them, but I was just wondering, this is something that I've sort of thought about our field of Thai or Southeast Asian studies more generally is, did you intend to have an impact outside this field? I mean, perhaps more in the, the broader field of uh, queer studies? That's such a good question. Thank you so much for this question. I think I did, because when I was writing the book, I was toggling back and forth 
between reading sort of uh, queer theory, trauma theory, critiques of liberalism within queer studies, largely from sort of the North American field of scholarship and the Thai materials and, and also some Thai scholarship. And so I think what, what a book such as this and, you know, many related endeavors can do is precisely to expand the almost exclusive focus on a domain of rights and recognition and all those things that have become so dominant sort of in in the U.S. especially, but also in Europe, also in many global locations. The Buddhist perspective or the Southeast Asian perspective, and in particular the Thai perspective, can thoroughly expand our perspective on queerness by its continuing attention to sort of the psychological and affective dimensions of desire and the social dimensions that are outside of the sphere of legal recognition. And, uh, you know, mobility, upward mobility, social mobility that gay marriage is thought to afford in some places. Um, so I think that's really the, the achievement of the materials that I look at. I don't know if the book can, can do that. Have you had any feedback from people in queer studies outside of Southeast Asia or even Asian studies? I think I'm sort of equally involved in sort of Asian studies contexts and more general humanities contexts that deal with questions of trauma and queer sexuality. I haven't had any written reviews from outside of Southeast Asian studies or Asian studies for the book, but I'm constantly in conversation with people who work in trauma theory or are thinking about the expansion of notions of queer kinship. I think especially in trauma studies or, you know, affect studies, there's a great interest in what a Buddhist context can make available to us. So I think there's a great interest in how at least the materials that I look at make Buddhist contexts available to queer and feminist analysis. But this is on this is, you know, on the level of like taking part in conferences, talking to people such as Kathy Carruth, who is a trauma theorist. So I think there's great interest and this is also um I would say thanks to interlocutors, sort of either people that I um, have worked with in the past, such as Lauren Berland in Queer Studies, or Wendy Brown, whose work the book also really um, relies on. I have to ask you before we go whether you, I'm sure you'd watched the, the, the hit TV, uh, Thai TV soap opera Bupe Saniwat or Love Destiny, which broke TV ratings records earlier this year, which seemed to be another story of, about a female ghost who finds it difficult to renounce her desire. And so that the popularity of this this soap opera seemed to kind of really confirm the argument in your book. You know what? It, it's so terrible. I'm you're completely ahead of me. I I have to catch up with you on this. I haven't watched it. I've seen lots of sort of um, posts on Facebook and writing about it, etc. But I, you know, it will. The ghost will always play a new role. The ghost will always do a new thing. I think in the Thai public sphere. So that's something we should continue to follow. <laughs> but before we conclude, Annika, there's a traditional question that we ask our guests, and that is, could you tell us about your new project? What are you working on now? I'm completing, meaning uh, revising for publication, a book on the Thai poet Angkan Kalayana Pong, on his work and how his work uses Buddhism from sort of roughly... The high point of his writing is 1960s to 1980s. So how Buddhism figures in a Thai literary modernity 
that moreover takes shape within the Cold War in Southeast Asia. So this is a book that will also include 15,000 words of translation of this poetry, and it draws this very important Thai poet and maybe important global poet in relation to uh, poetry globally, to the work of um, Pao Ceylan, to the work of Allen Ginsberg especially. What I'm further working on is a book on sort of the significance of the digital sphere to how we think about uh, the Thai political sphere, and another project that looks at the revival of the aesthetics of colonial modernity and of um, Chinese pasts across cinema and hospitality venues, especially in Bangkok and Bangkok's refurbishing Chinatown, but also um, in Hong Kong and Shanghai. We'd love to hear uh, about those uh, projects at some time in the future. But before then, Annika Furman, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Ghostly Desires, Queer Sexuality and Vernacular Buddhism in Contemporary Thai Cinema, published by Duke University Press. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to Rook Shredneck's Thailand's International Meditation Centres or Catherine Bowie's Of Beggars and Buddhas, The Politics of Humour in the Visantra Jataka in Thailand. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to vote. Monkey!